Hey everybody, this is Mike Van Meter and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast and I want to thank you for joining me and you can reach us at our Facebook site which is also called Recovery is Possible. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And today I'm excited to have a returning guest and that's Charlie Angle. And uh, the episode was uh, Charlie Angle, The Running Man, episode 86. If you've not checked that out, please go back and, and listen to that episode because it's uh, pretty interesting. He's an interesting guy. He's the author of a book called Running Man, a memoir of ultra endurance. And you know, in 2007, he was a subject of a documentary called Running the Sahara, and it was narrated by Matt Damon, and it's where uh, he, um, Roy Zahab, and Kevin Lynn attempted to run across the Sahara Desert, and and uh, so that's what the documentary was about, and check out his book. You can also check him out in, on Instagram at Charlie Angle, and he also has a website, which is charlieangle.com, and I wanted to bring him back on the show because he has an exciting project that's coming up. It's a fundraiser, and I'm going to have Charlie tell you all about that, but uh, very interesting guy. Some of you may know that I dabbled in ultra marathons myself in early recovery i've done a, a couple of uh, 50 milers and then i did a 50k at one point and i last one was back in 2013 and i think i'm still recovering from that and we are in 2022 so i'm still in that recovery process so with that thanks for coming back on the show charlie that, that made me smile, Mike. Thank you. It's uh, I, I'm in recovery from all of mine too, so it's a uh, it's a lifelong process. It is. So, I I, t- yeah. I think I'm still recovering from the effects of that, but but I think I'm about to get roped into another endurance event. And the uh, the only difference is I'm a lot older. I've had three surgeries since then, and I'm completely unprepared for it. But it's for a good cause. And uh, I, I wanted you to tell the audience all about that. Well, I, first of all, preparation is really overrated, in my opinion. So I wouldn't worry too much about about preparation. So, um, so this event, Mike, is really about, uh, in a sense, it's about honoring my sobriety, but it's about honoring sobriety. And I will have on July twenty third. Uh, of this year, assuming I don't relapse between now and then, I'll have 30 years of continuous sobriety. And for anybody that knew me back in my 20s, you would know for sure that that is about as miraculous as anything you've ever heard of. And, you know, my way of celebrating is a little different than most people, even in sobriety. I will run for 30 straight hours uh, in order to celebrate this milestone in my life. And I've invited um, all of my friends and family and supporters to come join in this journey with me and take on as many of those 30 hours as they're willing to do. Now, along with this, this is going to be part of a fundraiser, correct? Yes, exactly. Hey, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so the fundraising piece is, I mean, look, and I'm always, I rarely do, I've raised a lot of funds in my career, but I rarely do something specifically for fundraising. But, you know, Ashley Addiction Treatment Center, uh, which you're very familiar with, is uh, a partner in this thing for me, that it's up in Havana Grace, Maryland, and that's where I'll be doing the run on their campus. And... You know, they're deeply involved in research projects in the addiction space with Johns Hopkins and others. Um, And they also provide scholarships for people who can't afford treatment, which, as we all know, is quite a few folks. So this fundraiser is specifically geared those two things. You know, we're trying to put $250,000 in the coffers. So it is a it's a heavy lift, but. Uh, I'm happy to say we've already had some great uh, advanced donations and, you know, we're well on our way. And I'm, I'm really hoping that um, on the weekend of July 23, 24, we can we can turn it into almost a, a Jerry Lewis telethon type of a thing and really create a lot of energy, get people moving their bodies and opening up their checkbook. Wait, does anybody have a checkbook anymore? <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I do, their, but I never use it. <laughs> their, yeah, their debit card. Opening up their debit yeah. card and, uh, you know, and, and contributing to this. And look, you and I spoke about this last time I was on. Everybody listening to this knows what we're talking about. You know, you either have struggled as an addict yourself. You have a son, a daughter, a parent, a family member, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor who has struggled addiction and you probably know someone that didn't survive their fight with addiction and like everybody in this country is touched by this uh and it's not just a social issue it's a, it's an economic issue in the in the courts and the jails on the streets and you know we pay a lot of lip service to providing better mental health services, you know, for folks uh, here in this amazing country that we have. And, and yet we, we fall short often of really providing those services. So that's, that's what this is all about. And as part of your mandate uh, is, is my mandate too. And that's to reduce the stigma. You know, the more I feel like the more I talk about my own struggles uh, both as an addict and as a normal human being in recovery doesn't mean all my problems went away just because I, I stopped those behaviors. Um, I just get to be present for them now, you know, but, but we need to provide better support for people who are struggling so that we can stop it in its early stages until we, you know, otherwise we're just burying people as we've, as we've seen the, uh, overdose and suicide rates skyrocket in recent years. Yeah, very well said. And, you know, it's interesting that you said that this affects everyone. And, Charlie, I know that you and I have talked about this before, and we talked about it online before the podcast, that whenever I go and I speak to audiences, and this started probably about seven or eight years ago, I, I asked this question at the beginning of every single talk I have, and that is, I'll ask the audience, how many of you here in this room know somebody in your life, whether it's uh, you, loved one, boss, subordinate, whoever in your life, who knows someone that it is struggling with a, a serious addiction issue? Do you know that I've never not had someone raise their hand, Charlie? Never, not once. Everyone yep. says that. But yet, no one talks about this, or at least not. I would say that we as a nation have gotten better in this discussion, but it's not where it needs to be. And in fact, uh, you and I, again, we're talking about this before you came on on the show, that uh, recently there was an article that came out stating that, you know, during this, this COVID period, during the COVID shutdowns, actually the mental health crises have spiked significantly higher than the incidence of, of COVID-related deaths. And you know, but nobody's talking about that. It's not getting the press that it deserves. And I know that when I worked up at Ashley as an intern over this last year, I lost track of how many patients said that they relapsed during COVID. These are pe people that had a period of sobriety and then relapsed during the lockdowns. It was a stunning number of people, but yet that wasn't getting the press. You know, addiction and mental health and suicide, it, it's just skyrocketing and something has to be done about it. Yeah. And I mean, man, it's a, it's a tough one, Mike. You know, it, it is tough. And I, I acknowledge that it's tough. I mean, I, I would almost categorize it in the same vein as um, climate change or gun violence or all of these things. It doesn't matter which side of the political aisle you're on. We're all exhausted by talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and mental health. You know, mental health has become kind of a ubiquitous term that people glaze over when you begin to talk. And here's here's what I think can be done about it. And I I have this experience in the clean water space. As you know, when I ran across the Sahara, you know, I, I with Matt Damon, I co-founded a water nonprofit called H2O Africa. And what I learned in that time was a simple lesson. If I told you there's a billion people out there that don't have a clean drink of water, you're going to be sympathetic to that, but it really just doesn't mean anything to you. It's too vast to comprehend. But the, but the second I show you a picture 
of the nine-year-old little girl or the family that's digging in a muddy, you know, creek bed for the water that they're going to have for this day, all of a sudden it becomes real. And, and I think what we need to do a better job of, and even this run I'm doing in July, it's part of my mission is to talk about real people <laughs> who are struggling, not just hypothetical people out there and statistics and numbers because no nobody i mean it's not like we don't care but you just can't relate to a statistic mm -hmm. you know you can relate to a person and i know part of the mission that you and i share and this is still around stigma there's still a misconception i guess choice would be the right word right there's still a misconception that addicts are making a choice or that somehow alcoholics are making a choice and i just encourage people to set aside that bias and and put it aside and say i mean it would almost be like not having sympathy for someone who has i mean yes if that person smoked for a very long time and they got lung cancer if you're the kind of person who's going to stare them in the face and say that you got what you deserve, then I then you're not anybody that I want to be around. You know, because even if that person made some poor decisions, everybody deserves a chance, you know, to get better and to live their best life despite whatever mistakes they may have made. And I think if we can find a way to, to tell personal stories that will elicit a little more compassion and eliminate the stigma and also make people realize that economically as taxpayers it's in our best interest to give people alternatives to you know jail and prisons and hospitals and morgues it's a hell of a lot better to give people as many opportunities as they can to help themselves because we all benefit from that we do, and you you just mentioned that we need to have more options available to people that are out there. I was in a discussion this past week with a captain in a police department, and we were discussing this. Now, um, those of you that are new to this program, you may not know that I have a, a background. I was a police officer in Washington, D.C., and then an FBI agent, and I was over in a police department, and we were talking about this particular issue and this uh this police officer and i agreed and actually every police officer i talked to agrees with this that when you're a police officer working the streets the vast majority of people that you deal with uh have uh, some level of mental health issue going on or addiction and sometimes both combined at one time and that's who we deal with and as a police officer you really only have one option and that is to arrest them for whatever whatever they're doing whatever the crime whether they assaulted someone they're using drugs they're trespassing whatever it may be that you know you're there to enforce the law that's what you have but as a police officer even back in those days untrained not understanding the psychology behind this the, even the addiction of it not at that time um i didn't understand all that but i did know that this individual the best thing i could do for them at this moment for them and for the community was to get them off the street. And the only tool I had was to arrest them. Now, that needs to change, in my opinion. Now, having, you know, years later, a couple decades later, you know, I'm, I'm working in the counseling field. I'm going through training. I've, you know, gone to school, um, done the internship, seen it from that point of view. And what I've realized is we are not doing enough. I mean, the we have to give more tools to the people in the community that work these issues and for police officers you know one one of the things that i'm pushing for charlie as you know and advocating for is that we need to educate police officers on the the other avenues that are available diversion to treatment diversion to um detox centers inpatient treatment intensive outpatient outpatient all those types of options which your average police officer working the streets never even heard of half this stuff and i'm engaged in a campaign to educate them on that but you have to have the facilities on the other end you know even when these police officers do understand it and that's kind of the thing that you and i are talking about is we as a society are not putting um really a precedence on having the facilities available for the people that need them. And it's a staggering number of people that need these treatment centers and facilities. Uh, would you agree with that? I would agree so wholeheartedly. And 
You know, I do believe that your average police officer who's got some experience on the job has a pretty good idea what they're looking at. In other words, when you're when you're encountering a person, even one that's intoxicated or obviously in the midst of a, of a drug episode, it's pretty clear whether that person is an addict or this is a, you know, <laughs> a one off. This is somebody who who went to the bachelor party and got and got drunk. And so, yeah, I think I think, Mike, that the, you know, the training that the average police officer gets is already sure it could be enhanced and there there can be new things to look for. But a police officer with experience has a pretty darn good idea when he's staring at someone who is a struggling with addiction, uh, whether it's alcoholism or drug addiction. And the difference between that and, you know, the guy who had too much to drink at the bachelor party and this isn't sort of a normal thing for him. And I'm I'm not suggesting that that officer makes uh a decision to treat them differently but there is for that chronic person that seems to be relapsing over and over or they're getting in trouble with the law over and over to have a diversionary program that look you just said it yourself a minute ago there's not enough physical locations to go to that's Mm -hmm. part of the problem we're faced with and so jail sort of becomes the the de facto uh, option, which is not a good option uh, very often. For safety's sake, it might be the right short-term option. But then what do you do with that person? And you and I were also talking offline about, you know, one of the things that I think is being developed out there in the world, and I'm, I'm happy to say I'm one of the people doing it, is this idea of using our vast technological resources to uh, somehow to benefit people who are struggling with addiction and hold them accountable in a way that makes the public safer, that makes the addict safer, and hopefully in the long term helps them. I, I I can't tell you exactly what that looks like right now, but think about the day however many years ago when we didn't have ankle monitors or we didn't have those proximity monitors, you know, for an ankle bracelet, for someone to be on home detention or whatever. I mean, (laughs) like that's also made a big change in the need to have people, you know, in jail for long periods of time, maybe while they're awaiting their um, trial or whatever might be going on with them. I mean, there are technology can be our friend. We just have to figure out how to use it properly. No, that's a very, very good point. And I have to say that it wasn't until I interned at Ashley that I'd even heard of of this technology being used. And the more I'm around it and the more I just kind of look at it from sort of a macro level, the more I'm convinced that there is a a use to that. You mentioned something before we came on the 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 program that I'd never even considered, but I find it very, very interesting. And let me just set this up a little, little background here. Um, for those of you that aren't in recovery circles, you may never have experienced this, but you know, a lot of people, let's say you get a DUI or let's say you have some run in with the law having to do with your use. Let's just say alcohol. Let's just stick with that for a minute. Cause a lot of people can understand that. Let's say you get a DUI. Well, court may mandate you to go to AA meetings. Currently, what happens is is that someone goes to an AA meeting and they'll carry a piece of paper and they'll get whoever's chairing that meeting to sign the paper. Now, I mean, of course, I can. It, it's so easy to game that system and commit, you know, that that fraud, if you will. Um, the technology that that you were discussing with me, Charlie, would uh, not make it impossible to game the system, so to speak, but it would make it a lot harder, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, man, anybody who's got Strava or has ever had an Apple watch or anything else, you understand that you can, you know, we walk around with GPSs attached to us at all times. <laughs> so we do. It's, we do. Not that, it's not that hard to envision, you know, a technology that would allow us to confirm that people are actually going to the recovery meetings that they need to go to. And, and look, Mike, I should also say at this time, there's 
when someone gets court mandated because they got a DUI to go to meetings, it's hard to know what the sort of reality of the situation is. This could be a habitual drinker who gets Mm -hmm. in their car all the time and they finally got caught. It could also be a person who hadn't had a drink in five years and damn if they didn't go out and have, you know, too many cocktails and get caught the very first time. I mean, you don't, you don't know. And that's not, it doesn't matter that time in that moment, a police officer for whatever reason pulled them over and they got a DUI. So the, the point is there's a way to force them basically to get drug and alcohol education. And that's by going, whether it's the AA meetings or going to other therapy. And the way we can confirm that they're doing this is through uh, the technology that already exists today. Geolocating mm-hmm. is the, the simplest. I mean, it's almost old hat. I mean, all you got to do is flip the switch and turn it on. We all know that from our own phones. Like you can, if you gave me access to your phone, uh, I could see where you are at, at any time. I mean, mm-hmm. that technology has been around for a long time. So boom, you put that in an app that guarantees that you're seeing that a person has gone to the location of the AA meeting that's at eight o'clock on Wednesday nights, and they still have to click the boxes on the app to say that they did attend. Maybe they even have to go up to the person who's leading the meeting and have that person, uh, you know, electronically sign something or click a box. The fact of the matter is what you can't fake is that that phone was there at that moment, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And that kind of thing, just taking that concept and growing it uh, is, is a step in the right direction because it doesn't have to burden the already overburdened law enforcement. It doesn't have to overburden the court systems. It can literally just kind of shed this off. And now I'm not naive enough to think that there won't be some other bureaucratic problems <laughs> because that's, you know, that's the nature of the system. But this is a way to unburden human beings and allow technology to help us in the best possible way. Yeah, I mean, there's always going to be, people are going to game this system. They're going to find ways to get around it, but we're moving it out of out of what is right now a very archaic system, very, very archaic yeah. system. Um, there there are systems out there right now that I'm starting to see more people use it, but, you know, things where you can, uh, you carry an app and you carry a device and um, you're notified several times a day where you have to blow into it. Let's talk about alcohol. It's, you know, yeah. it's a breathalyzer and you blow into that, you know, per day. And if you fail to do that, and, you, and it takes a picture of you every time you do this. And if you fail to do it, yep. then there's all kinds of people that are notified where I've seen that used is with doctors that have to report to a medical board in, in a particular state. Some pilots have used it because they FAA, yeah. uh, the FAA has to monitor, you know, the people that are working in recovery. And, and by speaking of which, speaking of which, the most, the highest success when I was at Ashley and I, and I did some work with the, the pilot program and the government program when I was there, the, the studies that they did showed that the, patients that had the highest by far the highest long-term sobriety success rate were in fact the pilots and that's because they were mandated by the faa uh you know if they wanted to get back into the cockpit and fly they had to be under monitoring for like two years very very stringent monitoring and you might say well that's kind of draconian that's kind of tough yeah well but the way that they put it was, you don't have to do this program, but you don't have to fly either. And so you you had to make a decision. Did you want to fly again or did you want to drink again? And if you wanted to fly again, then this is the program that you were going to follow. But the long-term result was that these people, by and large, had a very, very high uh, success rate in long-term recovery. So yeah. uh, a lot of technology being used in that. And so I agree with you wholeheartedly. I don't, I don't know from the experience I got in this whole program, this educational program and in the internship, that most recovery centers are really taking advantage of the, the current, the current, we're not even talking about future technology, technology we have right now available to us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and some of that, as you know, uh, you and I have talked, you know, offline, some, some politics, but politics in general, it, <laughs> we are all at least, generally aware that 
you know, every industry, including the treatment, addiction treatment industry has lobbyists. Mm -hmm. They have financial incentives to keep systems the way they are now, even in, even in cases where it's not working very well. And that's just the, look, that's the nature of all things. That's in the food industry, pharma, you know, there's not an industry in this country that doesn't have lobbyists and people who are advocates for that industry. And that's, you know, that's part of the beauty of the country we live in. It also muddies the water sometimes and it keeps industries like addiction treatment stuck in the past. And it makes it harder for treatment centers to use technology and to, I don't want to say take a risk, but gamble a little bit on finding new methodologies to help people. Because look, man, you and I both know uh, long-term sobriety after people leave rehab. And I mean, I think Ashley's numbers are probably up at the top of the scale, but even at the top of any scale, it, the numbers aren't exactly um, stellar. You know, it's, it's, it's tough when you look at the numbers of people who go through rehab and stay sober for a year, for example, you know, mm -hmm. that, that number, I don't know what it is exactly. So I always hesitate to say an exact number, but it's, you know, it's not as high as we would want it to be. And, and some of that is because the industry, especially the for-profit part of the treatment industry really has no incentive or motivation to change. And I'm not suggesting they don't want to help people. That would be unfair. Of course, they want to help people, but they also want to continue the cash flow into their business. And so they're less incentivized to look for creative ways. So I'm I'm working with a group of people and, you know, talking to, as you know, I work with Deepak Chopra and some other folks and, you know, there is technology and ways to use it out there that can help. Well, let me just say one other thing before I, uh, I love interrupting myself. The fact of the matter is only about 10% of the country, of the people in the country that need help, get help. <laughs> that leaves 90% right. of the people out there who never go to rehab. They never. So we definitely can use technology to help those people. You know, everybody knows what a Fitbit is. And so if, if we're, if all we're even talking about here is for those people who are listening to this who really don't know about wearable devices, just picture a Fitbit, which everybody knows about counting, you know, your 10,000 steps or whatever. These other devices are much more sophisticated, but in essence, you're just measuring, you're measuring sleep and you're measuring exercise and strain and recovery and heart rate and skin temperature. And there's a lot of anxiety markers and things that can be measured with these devices that allows a therapist or a coach to see predictive signs of what's going on. Because as you and I both know, a lot of times once a person reaches that crisis stage where they are in great danger of relapse, the signs have been there for weeks or months. Mm -hmm. But... But as addicts, we're very good at hiding those things from people. You know, you, you may not be admitting that, yeah, I'm having some thoughts of drinking or I'm whatever it is. Well, if the person is willing to wear the wearable device, and this isn't a tracking device. This is just a fitness monitor is what it is. But if that person will sign on to this program, you can start to see those signs long before they reach that place where they're ready to explode. They're ready to relapse. And, and this is just all this technology, like you said a moment ago, it's already available. We just have to find creative ways to use it, to make it affordable for people, and to uh, eventually get insurance companies to buy into it. Because we want them to, you know, be able to also essentially prescribe it to their patients. Yeah, and it's a great tool because you're those of you that aren't familiar with recovery, you're absolutely right. Relapses don't, you know, it's not like you're driving down the road one day and you your car 
Just makes you know what? There's a Seven Eleven, and your car just inherently turns right into a Seven Eleven, and you you are uh, you know taken over by another spirit, and you go in and you buy a, a six pack of beer, and off you are into relapse. That's not how it works. What happens is that it's something that there's stressors. There maybe you're not eat sleeping properly. You're not eating properly. You just lost a job. You lost a loved one. You got these stressors that are going on in your life, and that le- and that builds over a period of time. And then the relapse happens. And this is a tool that would help us uh, as counselors identify that early on and, and start that early intervention with a patient before they get to that point of the critical relapse. Uh, just another tool that we're not utilizing right now. And again, this is technology that exists today. This is not future stuff. This is current stuff. Yeah, no, it's beautifully said. What, the way you said that is perfect. And it's, you know, there... I'm working on it. There's other folks that are working on it smarter than me, but you know, this is, this is the wave of now, not even just the future. And it's, it's coming. And the, you know, the addiction industry is also very interested in it because it's in their best interest for someone to leave treatment wherever they are. It's in, it's in that treatment center's best interest that that person leaves maybe with a wearable device that allows for the therapy team to continue to see how they're doing in aftercare. Because right now, 100% of the data that is collected after a person leaves treatment is self-reported. Mm-hmm. It's, and I mean, as I like to say, meaning completely inaccurate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's, and that's, know. You know, and that's not to say that people lie, although people will lie. But there's a great assumption being made here that a person even knows themselves right. how they feel. You know, I mean, I know that's a weird thing to say, but like in most of the time, if you ask somebody how they slept, for example, they have a vague idea like last night how they might have slept based on how they feel today or maybe they remember tossing and turning at two o'clock in the morning but they don't really know the quality sleep that they got. Was it good? Was it bad? Did you get REM sleep? Did you get deep sleep? We also know that alcohol causes sleep disruption. So a lot of people who have been drinking for a long time will think, oh man, those two drinks right before I go to bed, that really helps me go to sleep. Well, we who are, have been around for a while know that that might help you go to sleep, but it's not quality sleep and you don't stay asleep and you end up with much worse sleep in the long term from, you know, from that alcohol. Mm -hmm. And so this is just a, this is, as you said, this is just an amazing tool to be able to, to see what patterns exist so that you don't get to that place where they're in crisis, where the second you're having an argument with your spouse or, you know, somebody at work uh, snubs you or what? something that under normal circumstances would actually be fairly minor. But there's been this long buildup over time that uh, you just building blocks on top of each other. And finally, that one last straw happens and you're like, screw it. I'm going to go to the bar or I'm going to the 7-Eleven. And, you know, and then there's no turning back. And I think we can we can reach that person with a soft intervention that just reaches out and says, because people don't even need a, a human being necessarily to talk to them. What they need to feel like is they're being seen. You know what I mean? You, you yeah. want to know that someone reaches out to you and says, even if it's a text and says, Hey, I, it looks like you might be struggling a little bit with your sleep right now. Um, Maybe try doing some more, you know, do a 20-minute walk this afternoon and listen to this meditation before you go to sleep. And they may or may not do either of those things, Mike. They might blow it off completely, but they have been seen. Like, there's that acknowledgement that, hey, I'm not in this world completely by myself. (laughs) And, like, somebody has seen that I'm struggling and I feel better. Yeah, no, it's so true. And, you know, it really, really will help. And 
that those that are looking at the industry and thinking, well, you know, we want to we want to perpetuate people coming back into treatment because there's a lot of people that feel that way. Look, I, from the numbers that I'm seeing, you don't need to worry about not having business. There is plenty <laughs> when it comes to the addiction yeah. world, the business is endless. It it just is. And what are the point about that too? When you were talking about, um, you know, not the, the the person, the patient, not necessarily lying. I want to throw this in too, that if you're new to the whole addiction world, or if you have a loved one that you're just frustrated with because they keep doing that, you know, and you're like, they're doing this to me, and they're drinking and they're drugging, and what are they doing? You have to understand that addiction is a disease of the mind and the body. And listen to that very closely of the mind and the body. And what we mean by that is addiction actually hijacks the circuits of the brain. And oftentimes, the person that you're, your loved one that you're, you're dealing with, it's not that they're necessarily lying to you. They may not actually, their brains may not be allowing them to understand how bad it really is because the brain has been hijacked. They may not be seeing what you're seeing, if that makes any sense. And so when the stressors and the lack of the sleep and the nutrition and lack of exercise and the stress in the body, all those types of things, the the patient may not actually comprehend that it is as bad as it is. Does that make sense, Charlie? It's, I mean, you said it so well, because it's, Look, the, the people who are watching this person self-destruct over and over and they're asking, how can you keep doing that? I always encourage people to like take that exact question and flip it on its head. Who would do that to themselves on purpose mm-hmm. over and over? <laughs> it's misery. It's absolute misery. Like nobody would choose to treat their own body again and again. And so finding a way to understand that you know, using their pain, their physical pain that they are in. And I know it's hard to feel sorry for the person who just threw up on your floor or stole your grandfather's stamp collection, because that's kind of stuff that happens every single day. And they seem like they're unforgivable acts uh, done by people who have no, you know, sensitivity and they don't know compassion they don't care about the family they only care about themselves i mean i've i've quite literally worked with thousands of people in my 30 years of sobriety and i hear those things over and over and i just have to try you, you said it very well you have to try to look at it a little more analytically and understand that this person is not making a choice they're not trying to ruin their lives you know or your life and I understand that that's the end effect. That's what it seems like is they are making a mess of everything. But, you know, finding a way to help them and give them a a number of chances. And there may come the day where you have to say to that person, I've had to say it to my, to family members. I've had to look them in the eye, people that I love more than anybody else in the world and say to them, I love you, but I cannot, keep supporting this lifestyle and the moment you decide to make the change and you want help i am here for you i'm never kicking you out of my life but you need to go do what you're going to do i i can't i can't keep cleaning up the messes and i can't keep doing these things that are enabling the behavior that's the hardest thing that i've ever had to do in my entire life including getting myself sober Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and some of that does take professional help to make sure you're making the right decisions. But as you said, we just have to have compassion and we have to try to have understanding for the person. No matter how many times they've screwed up, they really aren't doing it to you. They are doing it to themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and it's part of their chemical makeup in their body. And we have to find ways to disrupt that. Uh, connection and and to help them find a new a new way. Otherwise, they're not going to survive it. You mm-hmm. know, they're just not. Yeah, and we have to understand that there is help that's available out there, and because people, and this was my experience over the last year, because people are so wrapped around the axle that this is some sort of a moral failing, that this is something about 
you yeah. know, that person not being a good person. They're, you know, they're not living up to their potential and not understanding that addiction is a disease. It is a disease of the mind and the body and that being a disease as it is, it needs to be treated like a disease. And there is a help. There is help available. There are solutions available. And we have to be able to trust the people that know what they're talking about. That was one of the biggest challenges that I had. I know when I when I was in my internship was patients coming in and, you know, you would give them advice and they'd say, yeah, but this is how I, th- <laughs> this is what I think. And this is what, you know, I always like to do. And I'm thinking, well, that's, that's why you're here. That's why you're here in this treatment program. But, you know, um, Charlie, it's not just the, the patient. A lot of times it's a hard sell, the disease model of the addiction with the family members that's a hard sell too. And getting the family members to um, get on board with the program, because I'll I'll tell you, uh, my my experience was that uh, sometimes the families were as big a problem as the actual patient was. And I don't know if you've seen that or experienced that. I've seen it over and over. And I mean, you, you, you hit it on the head. I mean, it's, Look, a lot of people, most people, in fact, when they leave rehab or they leave uh, a halfway house, they are going right back into the exact situation, the exact environment they left. And it's not the fault of the environment necessarily that caused the behavior, but it is a contributor. Mm -hmm. You know, if if you're in a household with other people who are drinking and drugging, man, you have such a diminished chance of managing to maintain your own sobriety if you're having to go back into that situation and it, and it is a lot of family members i'll tell you something mike and I, I say this to groups all the time and i see a lot of head nodding and i'll be curious to see what your thoughts are we think that the people around us are they love us they want us to get better And we think that they are absolutely in our corner. And I'm not saying that they're not, but we've all experienced the the situation where our core group, be it family or our core friend group, will say to you, oh, hey, look, you don't need to quit drinking. You know, you just, you need to just slow down. You know, you've got to get this under control. (laughs) I look at those people and I'm saying, have you been watching me? Like, because if don't you think if I could control this, I would have done it by now. <laughs> and, yep. and, and the point is this, it's about them. It's not about you. Sometimes the people we're closest to in our lives struggle with seeing us get better. And I know that sounds weird. It sounds crazy that you would think that someone who loves you a lot wants to see you get better, but you getting better also forces other people to look at their behaviors. And the way I frame it is this, it's not that you're alone, but nobody is coming to save you. Like if you're struggling with addiction or someone else is sooner or later, you or that person has to make the hard and fast decision on their own that, They're going to do this no matter what. Nobody can force you not to take a drink. Nobody can force you not to do a drug, right? I mean, those those temptations are always going to be there. And there will be people who will try to, like, like you're on a rope, they will try to pull you back into their lifestyle because you leaving that life makes them have to take a look at how they're living. And... There's jealousies involved, you know. I, I always use the weight loss analogy. If you put two people who need to lose about the same amount of weight and they're husband and wife and they're in the same house, and I've seen it happen so many times, one person has, is having great success, that doesn't necessarily bode well for the health of the relationship. No, that's a good analogy. <laughs> the, yeah. You know, the other person is going to have, they're going to have, you know, they're going to be sour. They're going to be, oh, you know, you're going to leave me because that is their deep, dark fear. You're going to lose all the weight and you're going to leave me for somebody else. Like that's the fear. I mean, so it's, it's weird, but we have to acknowledge the fact that, you know, we have to do our best to surround ourselves with people who are going to support us. And if you are listening to this right now and you have a loved one who is trying to get their act together, 
and get sober or lose weight or change some other behavior, quit smoking, man, don't pull them back with that rope. You know, either find a way to support them by changing your own behavior to be supportive or at least get out of the way so that they can get better. Yeah, that is that is so well said. And what a great analogy. And I've you know, I've never understood that other than how you just explained it right now. When when people desperately want their loved one to get into treatment and get well and to stop drinking and then they come back from treatment and they're like, well, you're kind of taking this a little too seriously. What are you in a cult now? What what is this all about? You just didn't need to drink yeah. that much, and and that's uh, and that's another discussion for another time because that's dismissing the whole genetic preloading and and the fact that uh, you know alcohol is processed differently in the bodies of alcoholics than the non-alcoholics. But uh, yeah, but, but it just shows you that there's education that needs to to go all all around in in raising awareness uh, of this, and I, I do think that that's something else that you know, again, not to get political, but I do think that our our leaders, our political leaders, our government leaders, uh, if they understood addiction a bit more, they could explain to the public that this is a very real thing. Very, uh, it's a disease, and it's something that needs to be treated as a disease, and it is a is a major pu- public health issue that needs to be discussed and addressed at the national level. And I just don't know. I'm not convinced that we're doing enough of that right now. But you, Charlie, are raising the awareness of that. And and we'll wrap up today with, you know, just again, reminding everybody of what you got coming up here up at Ashley Treatment Center up in Maryland uh, in July. And that's the 30-hour run that you're doing. And that's to raise uh, awareness about addiction. And, of course, it's a fundraiser to help uh, people get into treatment, correct? So um, maybe run through that one more time. Yeah, and I think it'll be in your show notes, but basically if people just go to, here's a funny thing, I actually called this event the Penguin, (laughs) and uh, part of that is because I think of the way I run now these days. You know, I've gotten (laughs) a little older, and I I think I do more waddling than I do running, And, and part of the point, though, is physical movement. It can be in any shape or form. A lot of people claim that they hate running and I always say that that's due to their, you know, middle school PE teacher that used running as a punishment. Uh, because up until that point, you loved running. When you're a kid, when you're a little kid, you can't stop from running. So it's about trying to find a way to find joy in physical movement. And so for me, that happens to be running. Um, this event is called the Penguin, partly because Ashley has a funny the Ashley Treatment Center has a funny relationship with, with penguins. The, the founder 40 years ago loved penguins. And so the grounds at Ashley have a handful of, of penguins sort of embedded in the, uh, in the grounds at, at Ashley. And so people can go to thepenguinevents.com uh, to find this. That's just thepenguinevents.com. And what you can find there is a link. You could come in person to the event. You could sign up virtually, or you can just click the donate button and toss in a few dollars if you feel like this is a worthy cause. You can also go to my website, which is just my name, charlieingle.com, and all the links are there. Uh, my social media has all of this embedded in the, you know, the link in the bio on Instagram. So there's... There's all kinds of ways to find this. And, and mostly I just encourage people to the weekend of the 23rd and the 24th, either honor your own sobriety or the sobriety of a loved one or a friend. And if you're lucky enough to, well, actually I say, if you're unlucky enough to not be an addict yourself, because I'll tell you, Mike, I think, <laughs> yeah. I think you would, I think you would agree with me. Like it's a, it's not a curse. It's a blessing. Yeah. You know, Without my addictive nature, my sort of obsessive nature, I don't think I would be good at anything. So as long as I don't put drugs and alcohol, you know, into my system, I get to use my addictive nature like a superpower and go after things that are really meaningful to me. And, you know, this is one of those. So I'm really grateful for your support and you sharing this with your audience. And, um, you know, let's keep going out there and doing good for people. 
Oh, so well said. So well said. And what a worthy cause. And I do plan on being up there, and that's the 23rd and the 24th of July coming up uh, just yep. a little over a month from now. So I better start running. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> Me too. Me too. Hey, Me too. you said you're running like a penguin. I'm starting to look like a penguin. So I, I need yeah. to do something about yeah. that. But uh, no, getting, getting moving. And that's it's fantastic. And uh, once again, folks, that's uh, Charlie Angle. Um, his book is a, a Running Man, Memoir of Ultra Endurance. So check that out. That book is actually sold up there in the bookstore at Ashley. I know a lot of the patients have read it. And uh, his website is charlieangle.com. And he's also on Instagram, and that's at, at Charlie Angle, and that's going to be in the show notes, so you guys have that. So uh, the 2007 documentary, Running the Sahara, narrated by Matt Damon, and uh, check that out as well. Very, very interesting, and just a tremendous story. Charlie, thank you for coming on the show again. Mike, you rock, and I'm, I'll, I'll come as many times as you'll have me, and I look forward to sharing some sweat and some miles with you in July. It's going to be hot and humid. It's right there. Ashley's right there on the water, and uh, I was there last summer, and I know that I was just walking from the parking lot into the building. I was covered in sweat just walking from the parking lot, yeah. so I can't imagine what running is going to be like. But I think you like that. I think you like that heat and humidity, don't you? Hey, you know what? Choosing suffering is is much better than having it thrust upon you. You know, and <laughs> I, I not to not to delve into another lesson, but I always say, you know, the more often I do voluntary suffering, and I find a way to get through a hard situation, you know, those lessons translate to the other parts of my life, my my work, my relationships. You know, I know I can get through hard times because I choose to find hard things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that they give me the tools that I need. And I, I think we need more of that. We do. We do. And I consider it a blessing and an honor to be able to do stuff like that. Because I know in my drinking days, I would have never been able to do anything like what, what I'm doing now. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't either in what you are. Uh, folks, recovery is the way. So if you're someone that's struggling right now, and you're listening to this. Uh, life does get better. It, it can't not get better. Yeah. That's true. So, folks, um, yeah, yeah. As I, I'd like to say, if I don't represent any group, you know, I don't represent anyone other than myself. Uh, you know, Charlie's representing himself. And our only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what we've done because it's helped us. And maybe it'll help you, too. So if we've said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, that's fine. Just discard that. But try to take anything that we've talked about and use it to help yourself and others as well, because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we try to impart that knowledge Uh, or the knowledge that we've gained to help others. So with that, please visit my Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, which is VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com, and let me know how I'm doing. Let me know if there's a topic that you're interested in hearing about, because we want to cover that if that's something that you want to hear. And I, I love hearing from you guys. So you guys take care of yourselves, and we will see you all next time. And I'll see Charlie in July. Okay, take care.